0: Amen, all right. Hey, I don't know if you guys have ever taken anything for granted. Have you ever taken anything for granted in life? I think we all, if we're honest with ourselves, we have. But i tell you what, one thing that you and I should never, ever, ever take for granted, and that is the awesome job that Rob and the worship team are doing. Amen? Yeah. And if you don't believe me, hey, let's just, by point of reference, man, it could be like this. Watch this. Hey, all
1: right now, fellows. Now, what's cooler than being cool? Ice cold. I can't hear you. I said, what's cooler than being cool? Ice cold. All right, all right, all right, all right, all right, all right. Okay, now, ladies. Yes? Now, we are going to break this thing down in just a few seconds. Now, don't have me break this thing down for nothing. Here we go second 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 it, shake it, shake say second second
0: Ladies and gentlemen, give it up for Rob and the worship team. Man. Woo, wow. Anybody else's ears bleeding? That was not the sound of angels. That's the sound of fallen angels. But anyway, that's right. I need to go stack chairs or something. But anyway, that's right. But, uh, but, <laughs> but believe it or not, folks, as, as important as it is to not take for granted, uh, not only Rob and the worship team but the great work that God's doing here at Sunrise, I tell you what, that even more important than that is, not take, is your opportunity to get saved right now and avoid the horrible seven-year tribulation. And yet, what's our world doing? They're taking it for granted. Ah, yeah, I got plenty of time. Nobody, but the rapture could happen, bang! And you are left behind, and you are thrust, as Jesus said, into the worst time in the history of mankind, so horrible that unless God shortened the time frame, the entire human race be destroyed. Don't make that mistake. Don't take that for granted. And that's why we're going to continue our study, Are You Ready for the Rapture? And again, this is the study I just keep calling where the rubber meets the road, man. You can get all kinds of things wrong in life, like, thinking you could sing when you need to go stack chairs with all due respect. But, uh, but man, come on, don't get eternity wrong. Don't get the rapture wrong, right? Okay, and so far we've seen seven things about the rapture to help us get ready for it. And that was the basis of the rapture, the importance of the rapture, the purpose of the rapture, the reward of the rapture, the timing and the objections to the pre-trib position because we just are just weaklings and we can't deal with the fact that we're going to have to suffer. No, because that's what the Bible teaches. That's why we believe in it. That's what the Scripture teaches. We already dealt with that. But then the last two times, we flipped it around. Okay, fine. You've been attacking the pre-trib position, which we're convinced comes from the Scripture, by the way, which is where we're supposed to get our teaching. But we took a look at your positions, okay? And the first one was the post-trib position, right? And there's your blessed hope. For seven years nonstop, encourage one another with that. Right. But the post-trib position we saw isn't just the exact opposite of uh, our position, uh, it can agree with the scripture. And again, just to, uh, by recap, the pre position, what we believe that scripture clearly teaches is the church leaves prior to the seven-year tribulation. At the end of the seven-year tribulation, we come back with Jesus at the second coming. Post-trib flips it completely on its head. They say, oh no, you're going through not one, not two, the whole seven years, and here's your blessed hope. You just go straight back up come right back down. That's it, I'm not I'm choking. And we said, man, that's just not just kind of the direct opposite. It, uh, obviously, it disagrees with the Scripture. we got biblical problems with it. And, and we saw they placed the church under God's wrath. They state that the tribulation saints are going to be protected. They replace Israel with the church. They destroy the purpose of the rapture. And last time, five more problems we saw. It confuses the rapture with God's judgment. They confuse the rapture with the day of the Lord. They confuse the rapture with the second coming. They confu- uh, create a problem with the millennial population and create a problem with the millennial separation. Last time I checked, when you got nine opportunities that you're there and you contradict the Bible, you create a problem in the Scripture, you disagree with the Bible, that's kind of a sign that you're getting it wrong. Anybody? Yeah, nine, right? Unfortunately, uh, that's not all. The 10th problem with the post tribulation is it totally destroys, yeah, you might as well just do a nuclear bomb, on Jesus' wedding, right? Did you know that the church is what? The friend of Jesus? No, we are what? What's the Scripture call us? The bride of Christ. And what happens when the rapture happens? We go to be a part of a wedding, okay? But we're the bride of Christ, okay? The Bible's very clear about that. Ephesians chapter five, that's our opening text. Let's just take a look at that. I would assume even the post-tripper would have to admit the scripture teaches that we're not just somebody, right? The church is the bride of Christ. And why does the Bible use that language? Bridegroom, Jesus, and us, the bride? Because we're destined for a... Rhymes with the wedding for all none of you paying attention, but that's right won't take offense to it, but anyway, that's right. Move on. Uh, Ephesians chapter five, let's take a look here, uh, starting with verse 28. And let's take a look. What does the Bible say about our identity, right? Ephesians chapter five, the section with wives and husbands, right? And got, Paul's using an analogy, but he's talking about Christ and the church as well. He says this, verse 28, in the same way, husbands ought to love wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. I mean, after all, no one ever hated his own body, but he what? He feeds it and cares for it just as what? Christ does the who? The church. Why? Because we're members of his body. And for this reason, a man, he says, will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Now, he says this is a profound mystery, but what am I really talking about here? I'm talking about Christ and the church. You may be seated if you can. And again, the Bible's very clear, that's just one passage saying that, listen, and I would assume even the post-tribber would have to agree, the Bible teaches that we're not just the church, right? We're not just a group of people. We are considered what? The bride of Christ. Okay. But once again, you take a look at their timing that you go all the way to the seven-year tribulation, and then it's just as soon as Jesus comes back at the second coming, it's just real quick. you messed up the timing for the wedding. In fact, you literally destroy the wedding of the bridegroom and the bride of Jesus Christ. And the reason why is because the Bible doesn't just say we're the bride of Christ, we just saw that. The Bible says at the rapture, guess what? That's why he's coming to get us for the wedding. We're received by Christ. And this is another rapture passage, not just 1 Thessalonians 4, not just 1 Corinthians 15, but John 14, he tells us our heavenly bridegroom, he's coming back to get us for the wedding at the rapture, right? In my father's house, John 14, two through three, are many rooms, Jesus said. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I'm going there to prepare a place for who? You, for us. That's what he's doing right now. Uh, The Jewish customs and mannerisms, he's right now building what's called the bridal chamber or the hoopah, in addition to the father's house. It's following perfect Jewish customs for a what? For a marriage ceremony, right? As one guy said this, if if God created all the universe and the earth and everything that we see in six days, how awesome is this bridal chamber that he's been working on for 2,000 years, right? But that's where we're going for a wedding, right? And that's what he says. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm going to what? I'm going to come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. So again, Jesus is clearly telling us this is not just a rapture passage, but he's telling us that when he comes back and gets us the bride, the church at the rapture, we're going back to the father's house. We're going to begin that wedding procedure. Now, here's the whole question. Why would Jesus prepare a place for us in heaven, building a hoopah, a bridal chamber, and then not take us to heaven? as the post-trip position says. Because what do they say? You're going all the way through. You don't, you're just... When did I get to see the father's house? When did I make... I didn't, nothing. I didn't even get to start the marriage. This is not a small issue, folks. It messes everything up with the wedding uh, that we see in the scripture with Christ and the church, okay? But again, it, it gets even worse than that. Not only do we not make it into uh, heaven for to start the wedding, to see the father's house or any of that stuff, but the Bible also says that we're up in heaven celebrating. Last time I checked, when you get married, it's supposed to be a time of celebration. You ever been to a wedding? It's like the person like, ah. men don't move a muscle because you're going to be in trouble on the way home. I try. <laughs> Just smile. All right. Okay, but the last time I checked, it, weddings a celebration. Well, did you know the Bible says that we're also up there, not only beginning the wedding procedures and bridal chamber of the Father's house, but we got to have time to celebrate. Okay, and that's what we see. This is just one passage that Jesus is returning with a wedding banquet, right? Luke 12, 36, like men waiting for their master to return from a what? Wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. So again, when Jesus comes back at his second coming, he's coming back from what? What's the Bible say? Not a shopping tour. He wasn't on a cruise, right? He was what? He's coming back from a? Wedding banquet. And that's at the end of the seven-year tribulation. That's seven years have gone by, etc. So the question is, how can Jesus be returning from a wedding banquet if the wedding hasn't even taken place yet and the bride didn't even show up in the first place? Kind of hard, right? But that's what the post tribulation would have you and I believe. The only way for the wedding to take place, have time for the celebration, the wedding banquet, okay, is what? You got to leave prior, which is the pre tribulation position, and we're up there, the wedding process, celebration, then we come back, which leads to the next problem that they have. They also uh, mess up the return of Jesus Christ, okay? The Bible says we're not just the bride of Christ. We'd only celebrate with Christ, but we return with Jesus Christ. And, and again, this fits the, the Jewish marriage ceremony down to a T, right? Because after the ceremony was done and the marriage was consummated, the bride and the groom are presented to the, quote, world as man and wife, right? They're accompanying together. Now, that's exactly what we see with the pre trib position that we're up in heaven, and then it's time to present us to the world after the wedding at the return of Jesus Christ, Revelation 19. We accompany Christ to be presented to the world, right? And that's what we see here, Revelation 19, the second coming passage, right? I saw heaven standing open, Revelation 9, through 14, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes wars. His eyes are like blazing fire. On his head are many crowns. He's got a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He's dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. Obviously, we're talking about Jesus, the second coming. Now, let's go on. The who? Armies of heaven, as we saw last week, was us. We're following him, riding on white horses, and we also have the clothing of the church. Dressed in what? Fine linen, white and clean. So again, scripture is very clear. We're not only in heaven with the marriage ceremony, marriage celebration, but just like the Jewish marriage ceremony procedure chronologically goes, when that's done, what's, what's the time for? It's time to present man and wife to the world. That's what we got going on here. We're mentioned there with Jesus coming back at the end of the seven-year tribulation, okay. Now here's the point: uh, How can that happen in the post-trib scenario? Listen to this, folks. The post-trib position teaches the church will go up to meet Jesus at His second coming, but the Bible says what? No, we come back with Him at the second coming. So you even messed that up. Three for three, three strikes are out. You literally destroy the whole wedding that we have to look forward to. Okay, that starts at the rapture. One guy says this, when Jesus returns to the earth at the second coming, he is going to return from a wedding. At the rapture, Jesus is married to his bride, the church. After the wedding, they return to the earth. The bride of Christ, the church, is made ready to accompany Christ to earth before the second coming in heaven. But how could that happen if the church, listen, is still on earth awaiting the second coming? As the post-trib position says. If the rapture of the church takes place at the second coming, then how does the bride of Christ also come with Christ at his return? Makes no sense. The marriage of the lamb must occur in heaven after the rapture. This event has been long anticipated. It's been looked to with much rejoicing. It will not be hurried. The bride has to have time to make herself ready. There's worship and praise involving all the hosts of heaven. And of course, I'm quoting Revelation 19. The hallelujah chorus of the redeemed must be sung. And with all eternity ahead of it, it, listen, it will not be limited to the first and last stanza. You need to have time for this to take place. The presentation of the bride and the marriage supper cannot be fulfilled in just one fleeting moment. The bride will prepare herself and be presented uh, to Christ. The marriage must be performed and the marriage feast celebrated and enjoyed. Yet, for the sake of a theory, i.e. the post triposition they would have us to believe that all of that happens just like that. And that's why he says, listen, there's no way, it can't be. He says, it's all supposed to be an instantaneous part of a downward sweep of the Lord coming back to earth. Listen, with no preview of heaven, no mentioning of the Father's house, of the mansions, the wedding, any of that stuff. Listen, he says, the post-trip position and its immediate U-turn back to earth simply leaves no time. In other words, as I entitled it, in my point, you destroy the wedding of Christ. So again, another reason why we reject that. Okay, but that's, unfortunately, still not all. The 11th one is it creates a problem with Christian rewards. And we just saw another reason to reject this. I know, it makes you, right? Uh, It makes you, that's what the post-trib position does. But anyway, uh, it it, it, it not only messes up the timing, okay, of the wedding, but it messes up the timing of the rewards. Because the Bible says that after the rapture, what happens? Yes, there's a wedding, but there's also what? Reward time. It's called the Bema Seat Judgment. Okay, And that's what Paul is talking about here, and that's when it happens. 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Now, the word judgment seat here in the Scripture is the Greek word bema. So if you ever wonder, what's the bema? bema you know, that's a football team. Babe. No, it's Alabama. But bema is the Greek word that simply means, listen, a tribunal, a raised platform mounted by steps, where a ruler or judge viewed over and judged the people at the games, right? The analogy that's actually used here, what this was used for, it's not a time of punishment, it's a time of rewards. And a good vernacular, they still do this today, because that's where the Olympics came from, right, from Rome, right? And, uh, but basically, when, we all know that when somebody wins first, second, third place in the Olympics, what do they do? They, they put them on the, the raised platform, right, and the judges, they pronounce what? You're going to die. And it's a shooting squad. No, the BAME of judgment is not a time of judgment. Praise God. Jesus took our judgment and punishment in our place. Amen. So that the BAME of judgment, because we think the word judgment, oh no, no, it's reward time. It's like the Olympics. You, you completed the race, you competed, and now it's reward time. That's the BAME of judgment, right? That's, I don't know how I'm going to do it. no it's the Bama judgment. It's like the Olympics, okay? And the Bible says that just like the Olympics, listen, after the rapture, when our race on here on earth is done, then it's reward time. In fact, the Bible says that we as Christians have the privilege of earning five different rewards or crowns, right? And this is cool. This is not for salvation. That's already complete. This is just, what did you do with your life, right? and have the privilege of earning something at the Bayman of the judgment, right? It's here's what we see here. The first one's called the incorruptible crown or the victor's crown, right? And that's what we see here, 1 Corinthians 9, 25. Everyone who competes in the games goes into what? Strict training, right? And again, he's using the analogy like the Olympics. They do it to what? They get a crown that will not last, right? In fact, back in the days, they had the, like the, the laurel leafs and those kind of crowns. and Obviously, that not isn't gonna last forever. And they says, they do it though in a normal game for a crown that will not last, but we do it, what? Why do we live for Jesus? Why do we serve him? We're trying to keep our salvation. No, because it's safe and secure in him. We're trying to not, loot, you know, and work for it and keep, no, none of that stuff. It's our salvation is safe and secure. We do it to get a crown that will what? Last forever, right? It's just, it's, it's a, it, it, for fruitfulness and faithfulness, you get a crown. And we'll see what we do with those crowns in just a second. But that's the first one that you have the privilege to earn as a Christian. The second one's called the crown of life. Or the martyr's crown, right? Revelation 2.10, Jesus speaks to us, the church. Be faithful until what? Death, and I will give you the crown of life. Our brothers and sisters, even right now to this day, all throughout church history, if you've been murdered for just being a Christian, you got a crown. You got a crown of life. That's a promise from Jesus, okay? Third crown is called the crown of glory or the shepherd or the elder's crown, right? You get to be a pastor in that privilege, then guess what? Uh, You get to get a crown. First Peter uh, 5, 1 and 4. To the elders among you, I appeal to, as a fellow elder, Peter says, a witness of Christ's suffering and one who will also share in glory to be revealed. And when the chief shepherd, obviously Jesus, appears, what you are going to get? You will receive a crown of glory that will never fade away. right Then there's a fourth one that's called the crown of righteousness. And this one I'm going like, come on, if you're a born-again Christian, surely you can get this one. But unfortunately, you look at the church today, most of them aren't longing for Jesus, are they? So it's like, man, you think you'd at least get this one, not today, right? But well, that's what it is, 2 Timothy 4.8. Now there is in store for me the what? Crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Listen, and not only to me, but to who? All who have longed for his appearing. All you got to do is long for Jesus appearing, man. Can't wait to see it. I love you. It's going to be awesome, right? You get a crown for that. Come on, right? And then you think you get this one, too. Uh, you, you, you know, We're called to share the gospel. We got people that don't even do that today either. But that's called the fifth crown, the crown of rejoicing or the soul winner's crown. And that's what Paul compared the Thessalonica church to, his crown. First Thessalonians 2.19. For what what is our hope, our joy, our what? The crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you, he says to the Thessalonicans, that he witnessed to? Indeed, you are our glory and our joy. So again, these crowns mentioned in the scripture are an incentive. It's not for salvation, that's already complete. It's an incentive. Uh, for faithfulness and fruitfulness, living for Jesus, making a difference while you can. Amen? You, you contrast this with uh, 1 Corinthians 3 that talks about those that be, their works will be judged by fire. It's not a salvation thing. It says there, uh, it'll be tried in that day, right? And it says some people will stand the gold and silver and things of that nature. But the ones that apparently didn't do much, what's it say? Your works will be tried with wood, hay, stubble, and straw, right? It'll be burned up. And what's he say? Well, now you're doomed. You lost your salvation because... No. He says what? He himself will make it, but what's he say? Only as one escaping the flames. wee, barely. And so basically, you get to heaven, praise God, that it's not of our works, amen? But do you want to get to heaven after all Jesus has done for you and say, here's a pile of smoke? I don't want you to get there like that. So this is what the scripture says. We have the privilege. It's not a salvation issue. It's a reward issue. We have the privilege of what? Now we get to stand around and go, my crown's bigger than your crown. Hey, I got five, you got three. Loser! No, the scripture tells us what we do with those crowns in heaven, by the way. And that's what we see here, in Revelation 4. We throw them at Jesus' feet, man, right? Here's what we see, in Revelation 4, 10 through 11. The 24 elders that we saw before the church, what? Fall down before him who sits on the throne, worships him who lives forever and ever. They, what? lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? Because you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. We're not going to get to heaven. This is not some Christian competition and we're not going, hey, I got more than you, you loser. It's none of that stuff. It's we're going to get there and we are all going to acknowledge whether we get one or five or whatever, we lay them at the feet of Christ because guess what? Who gave us the ability to even get a crown in the first place? He not only saved us by his mercy, but by his spirit, he's the one that gives us the ability to long for him, and share the gospel, all that. So he gets the glory through and through, and that's what's pictured here. Now, I said all that to get to this. This rewarding time that starts after the rapture, if you believe in the post position, when's there time for this? There is no time. Again, let's recap. What's the position? You go all the way through the seven-year tribulation. Encourage one another with those words. Huh? And then here's your blessed hope. What do you do <laughs> so it's like hey i think i kind of missed a wedding right there and not only that now you put it in this context what else are we supposed to be doing in heaven where's my reward where's the baby judgment in fact in the scripture there it mentions us the church in heaven that's revelation chapter four which is two chapters prior to the seven-year tribulation starting in revelation six all right, so we're already in heaven. We're already in heaven wearing these crowns. And in heaven with the crowns, we lay crowns. When does that take place? And the scripture times that prior to the seven-year tribulation. So as one guy says this, the Bema Seat is a literal event. It's not some symbolical fancy. It cannot and will not be fulfilled in just one fleeting moment. The lives of the saints must be reviewed. Their works must be tested. And the rewards will be administered. But you can't do that in a U-turn. So you messed up the wedding, and you messed up the rewards. Unfortunately, at this point, uh, at least my uh, experience has been, they throw out this zinger, and they say, oh, yeah, this proof, this verse right here proves post-trip, right? And what they do is now they mess up the resurrection, right? And here's what they do. Instead of, to me, I'm just like, man, come on, that, Oh, you got, I, we just went through 11 problems, 11 things that you contradicted the Bible, messed it up, messed it which Last time I checked, God doesn't ever mess things up. He never gets it wrong. He, there is no contradictions. So that's a clue you need to stop. But oh, no. It's like, oh, yeah. Well, this is the one. right? And what they do is they quote this verse, Revelation 20, and let's examine that. And once again, they mess up the timing of the resurrection that's being spoken about here. Revelation 20 through they they quote this, "...I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast in his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection." The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Now they quote this because here's what they would have you and I believe about this passage. They say, Well, Revelation twenty right there says that the first resurrection will take place, listen, after the rise of the Antichrist and the mark of the beast, you just you heard it. This is the seven year tribulation is well underway. Right in the seven-year tribulation, and they say, since this resurrection of the dead that's mentioned in the rapture is the same as this resurrection mentioned here, the first resurrection that proves post-trib. Well, that's nice. Once again, you're contradicting the scripture. You got the timing wrong. First of all, did you know that this first resurrection mentioned here is not the same resurrection mentioned about the rapture? That's your first mistake. And the reason why I know that is because if you study the Bible, which I highly recommend, by the way, you're going to see that there was more than one resurrection. Again, you got the the whole context wrong. You're talking about the wrong resurrection. You assume it's talking about the resurrection at the rapture of the church. No, there's four different resurrections in the Bible. You got your timing off again, right? The New Testament talks about many different resurrections. And of course, the first one was who? Jesus, right? Jesus was the first fruit of many to be raised. We see that Romans 6. 1 Corinthians 15, Colossians 1, and Revelation 1, right? The next one that's coming, right, is at the rapture of the church. That's 1 Thessalonians 4, okay, prior to the seven-year tribulation. The third one, okay, that's mentioned is the resurrection of the Old Testament believers and all the martyred tribulation saints at the second coming at the end of the seven-year tribulation. That was the people that got saved in the seven-year tribulation but were killed for it, okay, And that's seven years after the resurrection of the rapture of the church. Where do we get that? Daniel 12, Luke 14, John 5, and Revelation 20, which is what this passage is talking about. They're quoting. And then there's a fourth one, uh, the resurrection of all millennial believers at the end of the millennium, which is what's called an implied. And the reason why is because there's a resurrection at the same time of the unredeemed in hell throughout all history to appear before the great white throne judgment. We see that Revelation 20, 11 through 14, right? And so here's the problem that we got with this. They assume that number one, the resurrection mentioned in Revelation 20, the first resurrection is the same as the event of the rapture. It's not. In the context, as you saw, there's many different resurrections. The one that they're quoting is actually the third resurrection that doesn't happen until after the second coming, which leads to another problem. They believe that the, this is going to happen. The rapture is synonymous with the second coming. And so they quote this verse, but this verse is talking about their resurrection that happens after the second coming when their position, they believe it's synonymous with the second coming. So even quoting this verse undermines their position. Not only is it the wrong one uh, in the the four different resurrections. And the reason why, you know, why is it called the first resurrection? Well, we know it's not the first resurrection biblically because scripture interprets scripture, right? The first resurrection was who? So then you go, well, why is it being called the first because the context is juxtaposing it to something called the second death. Which is why you, and they're saying, blessed is the one that d- takes part of that resurrection because you don't want to be a part of the second death, right? And that's this event here, Revelation 20, 14 through 15. The death, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is what? The second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And so basically what we're talking about here, the second death is all, that's that fourth resurrection. All the people that have been stacking up in hell throughout all of history are now raised up to the great white throne judgment at the end of the millennial kingdom, okay, after that final rebellion, okay? And they're raised, and then they basically go from hell into the lake of fire, basically the frying pan into the fire. You thought hell was bad, you ain't seen nothing yet. And that's why he says there, Blessed are the ones who don't go and experience, if you will, death again, because you've already been dead in hell, and now, you get through, and now you're going a second time, right? That's a second death. But the context juxtaposes it from the first resurrection. Not the first in time, we already saw that. But those who get resurrected first at the beginning of the millennium, you don't want to be part of the second death at the end of the millennium, Right? So the verse they quote not only undermines their position, it's not even the same rapture, right? You got, your timing is completely off, okay? So, so much for proving your point. But let me give you one more. The 13th problem they have is it creates a problem with the Antichrist, okay? Another timing issue that they mess up with is the disappearance of the church and the appearance of the Antichrist. And the Bible is very specific about that order. The church has to go first before the Antichrist can pop on the scene, Right, and, and we believe that because we're just guilty of escapism. We're just a bunch of wimps, and we just haven't been watching those survival gears, and we haven't bought our Jeep with the muffler on top in case we have to go through a creek and bought our bug-out shelter and stuff, and, and we're just in a state of... No, it's what the Scripture says. Scripture says we leave first before the Antichrist can show up. Last time I checked, that's prior to the seven-year tribulation. Second Thessalonians 2, 7-8, For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. But listen, the one who now holds it back will continue to do so, holding back what? The appearance of the Antichrist, until what? He is taken out of the way. Then, when they're taken out of the way, what's going to happen? Then the Antichrist, the lawless one, will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming, right? And so, again, the big question is, well, well, who's this one that has to be taken out before the Antichrist can appear on the scene, right? Well... I'm not going to go in it as deep as we did before, but we've already dealt with this prior. But just to recap, uh, it has to be, I'm convinced, biblically, the church, the Holy Spirit's presence in the church. We have to be out of here before the Antichrist can arise on the scene. And we believe that, first of all, because the phrase there holds it back, as you just saw, is the Greek word kateko, and it simply means to restrain, to hold back, to hinder the course or progress thereof. Secondly, it's preceded by the word now, as in now holds it back. It's the Greek word "rt," and it literally means right now, this very time, at this very moment, it's holding him back. Third, the word that's used there, one, the identity of the one, okay, as the one who now holds it back, is referred to in both the neuter and the masculine gender there, which is how the Bible describes the Holy Spirit who indwells us as the church. And finally, fourth, I love this, the phrase there, taken out of the way, you know what that literally means? It's my Meso, and it literally means this to arise from the midst. What's that sound like? Sounds like a rapture to me, according to the Bible. And that's exactly what it is. You stir all this together, then here's what you get if you do the biblical homework, which is what you're supposed to do. Whoever this one is must be removable, must also at the same time be powerful enough to hold back, restrain evil, and the appearance of the Antichrist right now. And again, that's us. That's the church. We're the salt, the light, and we're to restrain evil. Uh, until he comes and gets us, and, and and think about it. If we were still here, we'd blow the whistle on everything he's doing, right? Therefore, the Bible says, once we arise from the midst, then guess what? There's nothing holding him back from appearing. Last time I checked, that's what pre-trib scenario, right? And one guy puts it this way: he says, and "The church will be removed from earth before the appearing of the Antichrist." We just quoted Second Thessalonians two. If the Antichrist came to power with the church still here. How could he even operate? And he gives a historical example. He said, for instance, when Hitler was fighting to take over England, did you know there was a ton of Christians praying for England's victory and Hitler's downfall? Hitler made mistake after mistake, and England outperformed Hitler in every stage of the conflict. And and, and it's difficult to measure the impact of intercessory prayer of Christians in physical warfare, and, and little is known of how great of a role that praying saints played in the defeat of Nazi Germany. So here's the point. So if the church is here during the seven-year tribulation, we would be, quote, given the Antichrist fits, right? In fact, we see that with the two witnesses in Revelation 11, right? They're given, just, that's just two. Imagine the whole church still here, right? So millions of Christians who know their Bibles well would recognize the man of sin. They'd pray fire down on that guy's head, which means, listen, the post-trib view would have uh, to plan on not just the church being here the whole time, but listen, that we'd roll over and play dead for the whole seven years and would never poke him in the eye, tell people, that's a joke. There's no way. If we were here, but we're not. Furthermore, 2 Thessalonians 2 establishes the fact that the removal of the church has to be, we just saw it, before the manifestation of the man of sin, the Antichrist. A fact that places the rapture before the opening of the first seal and the rider on the white horse, which is the appearing of the Antichrist at the start of the seven-year tribulation. The whole post-trib idea that these two phases of our Lord's return are only just moments apart, if not simultaneously, listen, is demonstrated to be utterly untenable. And for those of you wondering, that's a fancy word of saying, Wrong! It can't be. How in the world can that position be right? The Bible establishes the order. The church has to be gone before the appearance of the Antichrist. And your position doesn't just say that we're here for one day, one minute, one hour, one month, one year, seven years, the whole time. That the Antichrist is here when we're supposed to be gone before he can. You see, it doesn't work. That's why we reject it. Uh, because again, you disagree with the scripture. Unfortunately, that's not the only problematic position, right? Remember what we're doing? We dealt with the first part of our study. Is there even a basis for the rapture? Does the Bible teach the rapture? What about the timing of the rapture? We believe the scripture teaches pre-trib, and dealt with all their accusations and all that kind of stuff, right? And so now we're okay, well, fine. Let's take a look at your position. Now we've just dealt with three weeks on post-trib. Unfortunately, that's not the only one that puts the church in the seven-year tribulation in an unbiblical way. The second one is this position, pre-wrath. Don't you feel encouraged? Right? Because that's really accurate, because that's really what you get with pre-wrath. Right? Because basically the post position we saw was bad enough, you put us all the way through the whole seven-year tribulation, hence post at the end. Pre-wrath, basically, from our timetable, says, oh, no, no, you only have to go through three-quarters of the seven-year tribulation. Last time I checked, being even a nanosecond in God's wrath does that to you. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Yeah, it's wrong, but we're out of time. We'll have to deal with that, Lord willing. Next time. There's your cliffhanger once again for this week. Uh, but again, this, what's, what's the synopsis? Are you ready for the rapture? And, and, and again, if you're here to, I don't know your heart, but if you're not trusting solely in the work of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross to get you to heaven, if you think it's by going to church services or trying to be good and all that stuff, or, or if you, you've misconstrued the teaching of the crowns and that's what I'm going to get make t- no. It's only by his grace and mercy. And if you haven't done that, you need to get saved today. This is not a game. If the rapture were to happen today and it could, you'd be left behind. You, you'll be trust in. You'll, you'll see the Antichrist. We won't. But you don't want to do that. You don't want to make that mistake. But again, even as a Christian, are you ready for the rapture? And of course, you know, we're here at sunrise. Yes, Pastor Billy, I'm ready for that rapture thing. <laughs> and of course, you have to say it like you're a pirate. But as we saw before so many different times, what's going on in the church today? 95% of the church, you'll never hear what we're studying on. And it isn't just they won't teach on prophecy, which last time I checked is, is a doctrine. Did you know eschatology is a doctrine in the Bible? And you're supposed to know all the Bible. It's one third of the Bible. But they don't talk about anything but just a bunch of fluff, right? And, and, and the Bible, if you would study it, which I highly recommend, says that's actually what's going to happen to the apostate church in the last days. We've said this before, 2 Timothy 4, 3-4, for a time will come when men will not, what? This is the church, folks, not the world, the church. This is how bad it's going to get. Tell me we're not living these days. We'll not put up a sound doctrine. But you've got to keep the show going, so what do you do? You play what I call funny reindeer games. It's all about yourself, what makes you feel good. Instead, to suit their own desires, they'll gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They'll turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to miss. We saw this before, Kenetho itching ears, muthas myths. It literally means to desire only that which is pleasant and stories made up. That's all you're going to get in the last days from the so-called church. That's what's happening today. Now, again, I don't know a person's heart, but I will say this. You could be a church goer, but not a born-again Christian. And I wonder in that atmosphere, when you don't preach the word of God, There is no conviction of sin because you don't preach the word of God. There is no gospel. You don't even preach the gospel. It's just like a a club, a Christian club with name only. How many of these people that only desire that, not the truth, are really born again? I don't know their heart, but you got to think about that. And that's the mass of what's going on today. So you could be a churchgoer, but are you ready for the rapture? You better make sure that you're a true bride of Christ who hungers for all of God's word. And if you're a part of one of those churches that's doing that, you better run. Like these guys say, we'll close in prayer after this.
1: Church that has forgotten its foundations, a church that's turned away from its beginnings and begins to become a harlot church. Just, just tell me how blessed I am. Just tell me I'm, I'm, I'm going to be powerful and popular and going to have no trouble in my life. For just tell me these things. Water down. We revised that and said, if you can get people for one hour on Sunday morning in the building, that's the church, that's not the church. We can use every device we want to get people for one hour and keep it early and keep it moving and keep it going. But that's not the church Jesus built. And I'm embarrassed to be part of the church of Jesus today because I believe it's an embarrassment to a holy God. Most of our joy is clapping our hands and having a good time and then afterwards we're talking all the drivel of the world. Don't talk to us about holiness, or separation from the world. Don't, we don't want to hear that folks. People today don't want to hear anything they call gloom and doom. If if it's not smooth, it's gloom and doom. Well friend, let me tell you lovingly, go to hell and live with all the scum of the earth. You like to drink, go with the drinkers. You like to lust, go with the prostitutes. And if you don't believe this is happening in our generation, I challenge you to go to a Christian bookstore this week and find the best sellers. Ask them which are the best sellers and look at them. Look at the covers of the images of men, not the images of God. Five steps to be like me, five steps to better yourself, five steps to the new you, five steps to a wonderful destiny with their glossy faces on the cover not so subtly telling the church of Jesus Christ, if you use the principles of God, you will look like me and you became enamored with your own beauty and your whole theological focus now is how you can be smarter better better looking more prosperous you lost the call of god church when i see the church in the new testament they didn't have stately buildings they didn't have paid evangelists they didn't have a lot of money they didn't have organization they couldn't get on tv and beg but i'll tell you what they did they turned the world upside down And I think we'd better watch this business of, you know, God loves you, God loves you, and all the bumper sticker, sloppy evangelism. Will you remind people of the goodness and the severity of God? Will you remind them that there's a day when mercy is cut off forever? Will you remind them that people pray in hell but nobody ever answers? But in spite of what God has spoken, they create a garment of fig leaves and they cover themselves and say, all is well, all is well. And they seek out a church that won't challenge their sin, that won't expose this hypocrisy for what it is. I'd rather you get mad at me and go to heaven. I want to challenge you with everything in me. Put away lifeless religion. Put away empty pursuits of God. Put away all of the deception of the carnal nature. Holy Be ye holy, for I am holy. That's God's words, not mine. Would to God that Episcopalian, Presbyterian, Baptist, Methodist, Pentecostal pastors begin to stand up and see what's happening to the church that was once called the church of Jesus Christ. Backsliding, turning apostate, turning against the truths. Some who are listening even now and will be listening to tapes in the future you just can't lighten up and enjoy these theologically shallow experiences like so many around you are today everyone around you saying oh lighten up lighten up god's love god's good god's kind god is nice come to church in your Bermuda church stick your feet on the altar rail have a coffee and cookies with us we'll hear three point messages on nothing about god But there's a stirring in you. There's a stirring in the true bride in this generation. But if the Holy Spirit is truly, truly upon you in this generation, you will not be satisfied. You will not be found among those who sit in supposed houses of God with your feet on the altar rail and a cup of coffee in your hand listening to a PowerPoint sermon about a Christ they don't know. How do you know
0: you're one of them? Well, you might punch in your time clock, your religious time clock, but you don't want this. You want only pleasant things, cookies, a cup of coffee. Don't convict me. And I go back to the world and send up a storm. We are not saved by our works. But folks, the Bible's very clear, especially in the last days, on the heels of the rapture. The status of the church is not good. It's going to go into apostasy. We are watching it live. And I'm telling you, one of the sure signs that something is going wrong big time is when you show up and you reject this. And you reject it by fighting against it or threatening the messengers who are giving it to you in love as shepherds are supposed to, or... You specifically go to a so-called church service that doesn't preach that because that's what you want. Instead of being convicted and going like, you've got to be kidding me. i got to get out of here. These people do not preach the truth, and I want God's truth. How far can you push that and the reason why you don't want God's truth? you only got two options. I don't know your heart. If you've truly called upon the name of Jesus Christ, ask him to forgive you of all your sins, trust in his work and his work on the cross. Confess him as Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the grave. Romans 10, you're saved. And we Christians can blow it. We can make it, myself included, we can praise God for his mercy. But if that's you, then that means you're still in spiritual diapers or you're on a sinful detour and you need to get out. You know, there's a good word in the Bible. It's called repent. metanoia. Meta, after, no, mine, after mine. Your mind was living like that before, and you said, "Not 360, because you'd be back in the same boat. 180. And you says, "Uh-uh, I'm running away from that church so-called, that refuses to teach the Bible, and it's all a bunch of funny reindeer games, a bunch of fluff. And I'm repent, I'm going to somebody that teaches the truth. That's called repentance. That's what needs to happen today but if there is no conviction and you really want it that way, are you just a churchgoer or a born-again Christian? Man, how far can you push it? I don't know. But my point is, why would you flirt with that? Are you ready for the rapture? If you're a churchgoer, you're not. Make sure you're a born-again Christian today. Call upon the name of Jesus Christ. Ask him to forgive you. Well, that makes us a liar the another ten commandment says that you shall not steal don't ever take anything without permission how many of you guys uh, have ever done that well you guys already said you're a bunch of liars all of our hands should have went up on that one if we're being honest god already knows folks we've all taken something we've stolen something right that makes us a thief another ten commandment says that you shall not use the lord's name in vain he's not just holy even his name is holy hey folks